me if you have your own seller, you run into the same problem all the time. It's like, it's my last bottle of this wine I love. And, uh, you know, when am I going to open it or am I going to open it? Um, but it does die eventually. You know, it's like the wine, like people, does not last forever. Open up the champagne. It's my house. Come on. Turn it up. Uh. Hear a knock on the door when the night begins. Because we've done this before, so you come on in. Hello, and welcome to Disgorged, a fun and spirited look at the world of wine and drinking. I'm your host, Zach Jabal, and joining me in a bit is Ray Isle, the executive wine editor of Food & Wine magazine, to talk about how you cover wine in the modern world, great places for wine tourism, and why you should drink your wine before it dies. If you're interested in more conversations about wine, and you're in the Seattle area, check out my weekly pop-up wine bar also called Disgorged, where I serve up interesting and unique wines that are well worth your time. If you're far from the Pacific Northwest, you can still follow along on Instagram and Twitter at Disgorged Wine, or check out www.disgorgedwine.com. My chat with Ray is coming right up, but first, a thought. Aging curves for wine are tricky to figure out, and even the experts and winemakers themselves are sometimes stumped. While we like to extol the virtues of aged wine, and while it is a singular experience to open an older bottle at the exact right moment, I'd submit that there's more harm than good in trying to age wine extensively. The biggest issue is that shockingly few wines truly benefit from aging. I'm not just talking about yellowtail here either. Much of the wine in the world should probably be consumed within a few years of bottling. While a year or three might benefit the wine, going beyond five years in all but rare cases will probably diminish your experience. Part of that might be because aging wine raises our expectations, sometimes to a level that the wine itself can never live up to. It also might be because old wine is dramatically different than young wine. It's subtle and full of non-fruit smells and flavors. If you're typically used to drinking youthful wines, even those that have aged gracefully can come across as flat and uninteresting. So don't fret about it too much. Open those bottles while they're still alive and kicking, and only age when you're certain or willing to trust to fate. Joining me on Disgorged is Ray Isle. He is the executive wine editor for Food & Wine magazine. Uh, Ray, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great, great to great to be here. Sort of, you know, by way of, of technology. Yes, there's a wires and tubes and things to, that allow yeah. us to do this from three thousand miles away. Um, so I have a I have a very simple but possibly complicated question to start with, which is, uh, how did you first get involved with uh, the wine industry? Um, I first got involved with the wine industry, I guess. I mean, I I, I was a wine drinker before I was ever in the you know in, in the business professionally, and then. What happened was I got a graduate fellowship in creative writing uh, unrelated to wine in the Bay Area that put me close to, to the wine to wineries, effectively. I mean, I was I was interested in wine, and, and I started helping out first at, at bottlings because I, I basically had, you know, I had a graduate student income, which is effectively no income. And if you help out at bottlings, they pay you in wine, and they were paying me in wine that I could not conceivably afford. So that was an excellent thing. And then from that, I kind of realized that I was I was actually pretty interested in how wine was made. So I effectively became a cellar rat during harvest for a couple of years in the Santa Cruz Mountains. You know, hauling barrels, uh, washing out tanks. You know, all the all the all the of working in a winery, which was fascinating. Um, except that I then ended up moving to New York um, and and couldn't continue that. So I got a just working for a wine importer for, for the company that brings in 10,000 grams ports. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I called a bag of wine in New York, and as one does, you know, hawked wine to any 
any poor retailer or sommelier who listened to me, um, and and did that for a couple of years and wrote on the side. And eventually, the writing on the side turned into a a job offer, um, an editorial job offer. Um, uh, I worked to work at Wine and Spirits magazine for a while, and then moved to Food and Wine after that. So, um, so it was kind of a weird progression through the wine business from from production to to uh, wine to then eventually full time writing. Mm-hmm. Well, but it, it sounds like that, uh, you know, to what extent did that, those early experiences uh, kind of um, making or, or at least being involved in the production of wine and then, and then selling it, it sort of inform your, your writing? Because I think one thing that I, I, I really appreciate about a lot of what you write is, you know, you, I think there's a, there's a danger in, in wine writers sort of, well, there's, there's a lot of dangers, I guess. And, um, but one of them is that they kind of don't always understand the, the sort of business side of the business and that decisions that they might have issue with are made for you know, business reasons, and we can talk about whether that's a good or a bad thing, but it's a real thing. Uh, and I, re- I think I appreciate one thing about a lot of what you write is that it seems to really understand or come come at an issue from um, not just the uh, consumer side or the or even the critic side, but also the the winemaker side. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I honestly, if, if anyone were interested in getting in, into wine writing, I would I would you know I'd absolutely suggest they spend some time trying wine first because yeah. it's the sales is tough um and but it also gives you an incredible in the business of wine and it and it's and it's easy to forget as a writer that wine is a business and that you know it um you know if if wines don't sell they cease to be made and and so it's you know whether that informs what you write or not it's it's good it's it's as good background information as knowing how wine is made in the first place i, I think you know i i'm biased by my own experience but that's that's my sense. And I wouldn't have given up, you know, those couple of years I did of, of selling wine for, for anything. I think I learned an enormous amount um, that I couldn't have learned really any other way. And, and wine production, you know, just working in a winery, that, that, that actually informs what you write in a different way. Cause that, I think that there's, there's, I mean, you can write about wine and criticize wine and kind of uh, you know, try and turn it into words as much as you want, but there's, there's no substitute for, you know, punching down Pinot Noir in a, in a, one and a half ton tub um, for, you know, for four hours and smelling, you know, smelling the, the wine as it's changing and as it's fermenting and getting that kind of actual sort of in your bones sense of the process of making wine that it really helps just from a baseline kind of why does the, why do these wines smell the way they do mm-hmm. um, level? You know, it, it uh, that's a kind of sensory background that is really helpful as a writer. Whereas the, the sales stuff was a, was a, more of a kind of structural background in, in what exactly wine is in the economy. Yeah. And I, I would think, too, that having some experience with wine production makes you a little less likely to be taken in by, uh, let's say, the rather persistent forms of bullshit <laughs> that are out there. Because I feel like that's one of, you know, it's funny to me because I, you know, having worked, working actually currently several different elements of the industry, uh, there's, it's always funny to me when someone tries to bullshit me on things that I know better then I know I know enough about oh, yeah. to be like yeah that's not true. Uh, I feel like we see this with every like contraption that claims to remove sulfites from wine, which is I mean they're <laughs> deeply abhorrent to me on a lot of levels. But even there's a lot of there's a lot of wine making or winemakers and salespeople who who are trying to I feel like uh, it, whether it's to influence writers uh, or influence buyers or both. You know they, they there's a lot of words being thrown out that don't mean what they think. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, there's a lot of, I mean, there's, there's inevitably a lot of BS around wine, um, just as there is a lot of truth at the same time. I, I think working in a winery 
you gain a kind of practical association with with how wine is made that's that's pretty bs free and you also you know when there's bags of citric acid sitting in the corner you become acquainted with, with that form of <laughs> yeah the bs well. that doesn't you get know, talked like, about exactly yeah it's like okay I, now i know why that wine is tart you know if, if that happens to be the kind of winery you're working at so you know or you know or if it's bags of beet sugar and you're in france you know as, as the case may be but yeah, I think there's a there's a kind of grounding in, in the in the in the practical and the factual that really comes out of that that's that's enormously helpful. Um, anytime you're turning something that isn't words, which is a liquid and and a kind of a, a liquid that has an aesthetic component to it as well as a you know actual physical component, you're trying to turn that into words. You're you always risk running into kind of a you know a little bit of noise in the channel all the way up to complete BS. You know it. And and you you know you see that in any any wine description you know there there are things that are factual that you describe about wine when you say a wine smells like oak you know it, it probably is in fact because it was you know in an oak barrel and and absorbed some of the character of the barrel when you say a wine you know smells like freshly turned earth under the foot of you know a, a dwarf from the Lord of the Rings or whatever you kind of like think you're in the realm of, yeah. of, of of metaphor you know heading towards complete BS and and uh, so some combination of those ideally gives the reader, you know, a picture of what this liquid actually tastes or smells like. And I, I th- this is actually a really good uh, sort of jumping off point for my next question, which is, I think in some ways almost editing uh, copy for or f- for stories about wine or about food or, or any of those kinds of things maybe is a lot harder than writing them. And I've never, I've written plenty. I've never tried, I've never really been in, done the editorial side. And I'm wondering like, to what extent do you have to work with what is going to, what is going to come in from your writers and it is maybe a little too, whether it's too florid or too, I, I don't know. There's a lot of ways I th- feel like it could go and, and be inaccessible to your audience or, or at least potentially inaccessible to your audience. How do you, how do you work with, with not trying to be purely uh, factual and purely technical, you know, accepting that obviously, there, as you said, there's an aesthetic component to wine that can't be forgotten about, but also not just having it be sort of nothing but rapturous prose. Right. Well, I mean, you know, editing, I actually find editing easier than writing because it's, it's always easier to fix, <laughs> in my opinion, fix someone else's prose or the other person's opinion mess with someone else's prose. I find that much easier than, than working on my own prose. You have a distance that gives you um, clarity. You know, it's easier to kind of uh, apply critical thought to something you didn't write yourself. And that's just kind of the nature of things for me, at least. I think, you know, with with writers, you know, a lot of what we do at Food & Wine is not, you know, we don't run hundreds and hundreds of, of tasting notes. So I'm, I'm fortunate that I don't have to edit you know, endless descriptions of things tasting like black cherry or, or, you know, or smoke or whatever, because you run into a lot of repetition and, and, and fairly drab writing in that regard. You know, the, the editing of wine writing is a little bit like the editing of, of any any writing that's, that's reportage combined with a kind of aesthetic judgment. Um, so if I have someone write about let's say, you know, the, the, whatever's happening on the Sonoma Coast right now in terms of Pinot Noir, there's a certain amount of critical assessment that's going to go on there, and there's a certain amount of kind of evoking of, of the place that is the Sonoma Coast and why why it grows good Pinot Noir and what it looks like and what it feels like to be there. And so you try and – I mean, always what you do as an editor is you try to um, work with the person's prose. You do, not so you, – you try not to have such a heavy touch that you completely rewrite it and, and pull it out of their own voice you know, kind of uh, destroy it at some level. You try and work with them to, to make it better. 
um, to bring out the actual story. And um, that can, you know, that they can go through multiple drafts sometimes. It can certainly drive writers bonkers. But you know, if the end result is a better story, then it's worth it. I, I think. Um, and it's the task at hand varies from story to story a lot. Sometimes, you know, I've worked with really terrific writers who, who don't necessarily aren't, aren't complete wine geeks and don't know everything about wine who've written wonderful wine stories and I tend to weigh in more on the wine side of things then I've also worked with people who know an enormous amount about wine but who maybe aren't you know great literary writers so, you know who then my role is kind of is teasing out or pulling out the non-wine aspects of the story and, and, and making it come to life and so you just kind of learn to work back and forth between those two, two poles in a sense. Mm-hmm. That's a really interesting point because I think any good wine story has to kind of um, walk that line between being, you know, uh, filled with enough information and, and enough, you know, sort of factual uh, content that it that it sort of satisfies that we're not just talking about uh, sort of the aesthetic component, but but that it's not merely a recitation of uh, vintages and techniques and all those sorts of things. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, you know, you, you mentioned Sonoma Coast, and I think that's a, a really good um illustration of what I was going to ask you about, which is, you know, in the time you've been uh, writing about wine or editing um, for uh, wine publications, to to what extent has the, the focus of the of the writing community of the and of maybe the wine community at large, where, where do you see that focus in the I mean, let's say specifically in the United States to start with, where, where, where do you see the areas that people get most excited about? Because I feel like in some ways, you know, the story of American wine is, you know, so much of it starts with and still largely depends on California broadly, you know, Napa and Sonoma, maybe more um, specifically. And, and do you still feel like those are the two? That's the place where where the where most of uh, where most of what's interesting is happening, or do you see that as having moved beyond, or or, or where do you see it? Well, so I, you know, I think there's been a number of major shifts, at least since I got into this into the wine writing business. You know, one one of which is the you know, for a long time, Napa and Sonoma, you know, and let's say Chianti and Bordeaux and, you know, name a few other regions were that were the, you know, were really the dominant presences in the wine world in a way. And, you know, if you looked at the U.S. wine list in a restaurant or you, or you know, read what was written, you know, that, that was kind of the, the majority of what the subject matter was. And there's been a proliferation over the past, what, say 20 years of an incredible fluence of different wine regions and different um, grape varieties and, and different approaches to making wine that have appeared on the scene and drawn attention and and stuck around is the other thing. So, you know, if you look back, you know, to the mid-90s, it, I mean, there really wasn't much Austrian Gruner Veltliner floating around. Somewhere in the late 90s, early 2000s, up to 2005, there's something that's like a little boomlet of Gruner Veltliner, everybody talking about Austrian wines. And then other things kind of became the next new thing after that. But it's not like Austria and, and, and you know, and Gruner have gone anywhere. They've become a part of the wine conversation and, and have stayed in. Same thing with, you know, the uh, Oregon, you know, in terms of Pinot Noir has become a dominant force in Pinot Noir, which is fascinating. Um, the same thing with the conversation about, you know, more recently, the sort of pursuit of balance um, questions about you know, uh, Pinot Noir and, and uh, you know, what is the appropriate style? Is there an appropriate style? You know, um, all that kind of virulence that went back and forth about it. Um, you know, that was a new development. But again, I think it's something that will, that will become and maintain itself as part of the conversation. So what's happened in a way is this conversation in the U.S. has become much bigger and much more complex and much more interesting and much more um, vast than it ever was before. You know, I, 
you know, you can find Slovenian wines in the U.S. without too much problem. You can find, you're now starting to find wines from Romania and, and you know, uh, most of the Eastern Bloc countries, you know, it, it's that that kind of inclusiveness and, and, and just, you know, range of wines that are available has, has necessarily changed the way people write about it. You know, you, you know, it, it's like, who would have ever written about the Malay Valley in Chile 20 years ago, but now, you know, you start to see articles about it. Um, and so fascinating. It's, it does mean that there's a, there has become a growing kind of like trend chasing. What is the next new thing? Is it Jura? Is it the Canary Islands? Is it the Ballet Valley? Is it, you know, um, Pinot Noir from cool climate regions in Australia that is imported to the U S you know, so there's kind of a hurry up to the next new thing. And you get a wine list as well. Um, you know, and, you know, I, I forget what it is this year, but maybe last year it was the Jura. You know, maybe the year before it was it was X. You know, Slovenia was there about seven years ago, and so you do get a little bit of kind of crazy trend seeking. But at the same time, it's, what I think is interesting is those trends then become part of the overall conversation and stick around. Yeah, well, it's interesting because I don't know that answer. I'm not sure that answers the question entirely, but, but that's my sense. Well, um, that's okay. You could. Yeah, there's no. There was no script, so that's all right. Um, I was going to yeah. say that that. That sort of um, observation, I think, is really interesting because one of the one of the things I grapple with a lot, um, both from a writing perspective and from a like running a wine program perspective, is as those borders, as those boundaries continue to expand, and as there's more and more stuff available, and, and, and the sort of the cultural awareness of wines from all sorts of places and made from all sorts of varietals tends to expand. I, I feel like it's always important to not forget about like everything that's now well within the the borders of you know the the country of wine, I guess. And so I feel like it's sometimes one of the downsides to me is that as certain people chase the newest trend, the thing that no one else has tried, the thing that's out there, really forget about like, you know, who still makes really great wine? Chianti, Bordeaux, like all those places, Napa Valley, like those are, those winery, those wine regions didn't go away. And, and to, to, to be fair, as much as we talk about the, the borders moving out, that's still the frontier. And for the vast majority of wine drinkers here that, you know, um, probably mo- you know probably most of those wines that you mentioned are completely unfamiliar or maybe they've heard of once or tried once but they're not drinking Gruner Veltliner and Slovenian wine and wines from the Jura with any regularity and so it, I, I do think it's this danger of like getting too far out uh, in the on that frontier and forgetting about like I don't know to extend this metaphor a little bit like you know the civilization back home well so as an, and I should Raise this as an editor who's at a, at a very large consumer magazine, which which kind of puts me in a different position than someone who's working for a, uh, a small and very focused kind of niche magazine. I have to cover to some degree, you know, wines that, that people know something about. Um, you know, we have we have food and wine. I think the circulation is just under a million, and the readership is seven million. So, you know, you if you're completely obscure all the time, um, you just baffle people. Um, at the same time. I am fortunate that we have a number of pages, so, so I can cover both the, the, the sort of new and surprising as well as go back to some familiar names. That said, with magazines and with journalism, you know, magazine journalism, you're always looking for some, some kind of angle that's new because otherwise you're writing the same story over and over again. Um, so in a sense, you know, if you're looking at Bordeaux, you know, I did a story not too long ago that was about – how some of the sort of the classified gross in Bordeaux have finally come around to the idea that, that you know, enotourism or wine tourism it isn't really such a bad idea. And maybe they should be inviting to people and, and let, let them come visit. Um, and, you know, Bordeaux is a very established old region, but it was kind of a twist in the, in the attitude there. 
and you can you can balance that kind of thing off with doing a roundup of wines from the Girard, wine, you know, wines from the Canary Islands, or, or you know, take your pick. You know, the you always want some kind of freshness of some kind, or else readers will, you know, there's no drive to pick up the magazine in some sense. But within that, I'm as much looking for change or development or news in traditional regions as I am for the kind of you know sudden arrival of new regions or or really old regions that that are new to the U.S. like Georgia, as a, you know, case in point. You know, it's not exactly like it's it's not like they just discovered how to make wine there. It's been going on for thousands of years, but um, but it is definitely new in the U.S. context. So how you do that juggling act, you know, it's partly up to me. It's partly up to the other editors I work with, our editor-in-chief. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm in a magazine with other kinds of stories as well. So if someone, case in point with Georgia, if someone happens to be doing, a, you know, a story about Georgian food, I probably won't be able to get a Georgian wine story in the same issue. Mm-hmm. Um you know, so so there's a there's also the kind of real estate question of you've got 87 pages or 200 pages or whatever you've got in your magazine and what can you devote to what. Online it's a little easier because it's almost infinitely expandable. So if I suddenly get the whim that I want to write about Sauvignon Blanc from volcanic soils, you know, in a certain small region, I can always just write about it and put it online and, and hope that someone tracks it down and finds it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you know, I've got a lot more kind of open-ended space to roam there and and then and, and not just for my own writing but for other writers i work with too do you get the sense that people are reading food and wine more with the hope of getting uh, let's say stories about about wine stories about wine regions or or specific recommendations of wines to buy and to drink or i mean obviously i, I would guess it's a little bit of both but i would think that to some extent the the sort of the desires of the readership would would drive the direction of stories and whether it's more like exploratory but like hey there's this cool stuff but you know you might not be able to find it or my personal uh bugaboo which is like oh there's this really cool wine and guess what it's 250 dollars a bottle right. and then it's kind of like well that's <laughs> great um and the flip side is you know something that's maybe too uh sort of uh, transactional in terms of like here are the ten best wines under twenty dollars, which I also think kind of does a little bit of a disservice to wine too. Well, you know, I, you can look at food and wine. You know, and it, wine is, is essentially sort of similar to food and food and wine. So that's <laughs> kind of we're really redundant, but you know, we run a lot of recipes, and people for very practical reasons want recipes in the magazine. They want to know how to cook things. Um, and those recipes are sometimes tied to, you know, stories that are profile pieces or trend pieces or something like that. Sometimes the recipes are pretty straight food stories, like, you know, 20 things to grill for, you know, for the summer. Um, and in the same way, you know, I hope that people come to the magazine both for, you know, journalism about wine, stories about wine, and also for recommendations of what to buy. And there's no question they, they, and there's no question that our readers do want, you know, recommendations of wine to buy and that's partly the nature of you know of wine in the u.s which is that if you especially if you're someone who's not in the wine business if you if you're just kind of interested in wine and you walk into a store whether it's a grocery store or um a wine shop you're confronted with a wall of bottles you know you may walk into the average you know safeway near your house and there's 75 different chardonnays it's you know it's kind of nuts and so you know it's, it, it, i always say it's like what am I, if you, what if you walked in and there were 75 different brands of chicken noodle soup you'd you'd look at the wall and you'd be like what the hell am i supposed to do here so so there's no wonder that that consumers and and particularly sort of people who are getting into wine want some kind of guidance about what to buy because it's a daunting it's you know there are thousands and thousands of wines out there at the same time my hope is that they also want to read the stories about wine and and, and get some you know the, the kind of you know what excites me about wine which is people and the places and the stories behind them and the and the and those kind of you know more in-depth looks into things 
And so it's a it's a balancing act between the two. If you you know if you look at a wine magazine like the Spectator, you've got stories and you've got thousands you know, thousand or twelve hundred wine recommendations per issue with scores on them. We don't do that much you know recommending of wines because we're we're more of a general readership magazine. But you can't. It's a disservice to the reader if you don't do some wine recommendations because that's what they're looking for. At the same time, it's also a disservice if you don't do some straight journalism that tells them some background about you know things that they want to know about. And I'm not, I'm not actually uh, you know I don't really object to the twenty wines for under twenty bucks kind of story as long as the wines are good. You know um, <laughs> that's true. You know I think that that's a you as a journalist at a magazine you also have to take into account your audience. And our audience for food and wine, you know, a large percentage of our audience would really like to know what great wines there are out there under 20 bucks, as opposed to all the wines out there under 20 bucks, you know, which are the ones they should check out. Um, and so it's what you call reader service in a way. It's, you know, it may not be the, the story that I'm most compelled by. I personally, I think it'd be great to go to Georgia and, you know, hang out in Kikati for a while and, and, you know, find out about that region for myself. But at the same time, I understand that, you know, a lot of people want to know which rosés they should buy, and and there's a lot of rosés on the market suddenly. And in truth, not all of them are that great. So you know, so that that actually really does help people out, assuming you have some, you know, critical acumen and you're not just recommending crap. Yeah. Um, so since you mentioned traveling, I'm curious. I'm going to put you a little bit on the spot here. So maybe what are the yeah. the two the two places, and let's say let's start with two, maybe in the United States that you think, um, and may, let's maybe leave Napa out of it, just because I think that's such a default for right. for people who are first getting into wine. But if you were like, hey, you want to take a, a trip within the United States, you want to go learn about wine, doesn't really matter style or or place. Like where 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 are the places for people to go? Well, you know, I think I'll do a kind of side answer to this story first, which is that, you know, wine is made in every single state right now, whether not always from grapes grown in that state, but but it is made in every single mm -hmm. state. And and I think that one thing people can do is just visit wineries that are in your state because, it, you know, it's interesting to see what's done locally. Um, it's also a lot less expensive <laughs> and That's true. You know, less of a hassle than flying out to Oregon or something like that. And And there are some great states that are, you know, there are some great wine communities in states that are not the things that spring to people's mind immediately, like Virginia or the Finger Lakes in New York or Texas in the Hill Country. I mean, I just did a piece on Hill Country wine, which are great in terms of travel. They're, they're fantastic travel regions, and the wines are good, and, and people tend to kind of forget them because the West Coast is so dominant. Um, at the same time, you know, I was just in Willamette Valley recently, and it was a fantastic place to visit. It happened to be 34 and snowing when I was there, which was <laughs> – not what I expected, but but um you know there's a there's a it's it's a wonderful wine region to visit partly because it's not as fancy as Napa has become you know it's there's there's you know brilliantly ambitious winemaking being done there and the wineries are all I mean, largely open to the public you know there may be a few that aren't but it's definitely lower key and feels a little more like parts of California used to be 20 years ago and I think that that's kind of a pleasant change you know I would certainly vote for that I I um. There's a, there are a lot of it's hard to pick a wine region because so many of them have such you know such pleasures to offer. I think that if you want to look at California, for instance, you know Napa is unquestionably a major tourism destination. It's I think that the stat is that it's the second most visited you know tourism site, if you will, you know in California after Disneyland, wow. which is kind of mind blowing. Um, yeah, well, I have I have I mean, called it a wine theme park for adults before, so it makes some sense. Yeah, and in some level it is. The fact is, it also makes great wine. But there's, you know, there's a lot of 
one, there's a, there's a tremendous amount of money, and so there's a lot of architectural craziness and, and that. And there's just a there are, you know millions of people come each year. Um, I do think it's fun to get into some of the you know lesser known regions of county. I mean, Anderson Valley is is cool, um, or, or Mendocino as a whole. Um, Sonoma has a, a very different vibe from Napa, and it's much and it's much bigger in some way. And you can spend your days roaming around. I've had a lot of fun driving around in Amador um, you know, or in Lodi. I mean, Lodi in some ways gets a rap as being the source for you know vast amounts of affordable zen but there's some really interesting old vine stuff going on there and if you do a little research before you visit there's some there's some pretty cool wines to taste and cool people to see so in a little bit wine tourism is, is what you make of it in that you can show up in wine regions and, and and kind of go where everybody goes and do what everybody does and get a perfectly pleasant experience out of it but if you're really if you're interested in wine and you do a little research in advance and find out kind of like who in the region is doing really cool stuff and and do some calling in advance, you have a very different experience that I think is a lot more fun and kind of more, you know, personal. Mm -hmm. So, you know, even, you know, even a lot of places that aren't technically open to the public are willing to be open to see you if you just give them some advance notice and call up and say, you know, hey, I'm really curious about your wine. Yeah, I found um, that a lot of those places, unless, if unless you... Unless it's Screaming Eagle or something like that. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yes. yeah. yeah, but I found that a lot of those places, especially once you get outside of a little bit more established regions, are just so... You know, the people are so thrilled that anyone is even you know, like uh, taking the time. You know, I think if you, especially in California, like if you get out to the Santa Cruz Mountains or uh, the Sierra Nevada yeah. foothills or or any of that stuff, that's just not. Yeah, it's not on Highway 29, or, and it's not super well known. Then you should hopefully find people who are more than happy to give you a little time and a little bit of wine, and and they're excited that you've even dared venture <laughs> into their relatively yeah. uh, remote uh, winemaking area. Yeah, no, I think that's it. You know, it, it's if you treat it as an adventure, you know, as opposed to a kind of a, a, a prepare pre-made theme park, um, there's a lot out there. There's, you know, there's a whole lot of wineries in the U S and there's a lot of people doing good stuff. There's, you know, there's cool wine coming out of Arizona. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I haven't, I, I've tasted the wines. I haven't been there yet. I think it'd be cool to get to Arizona and, you know, sort of the Sonora area and see, see what's going on with, with vineyards there. It's, uh, just because something isn't in an, a, a wildly well-known established, you know, wine region with a lot of tourism already built in doesn't mean it's not a blast to visit it. Yeah, and in some ways those are, if you have a certain sort of, yeah, kind of adventurous mindset, those are the more fun places to visit, um, specifically, you know, or precisely because there's not, you know, tour buses pulling up every five minutes out front. Right, right, exactly. Uh, what about what about overseas? I think you know one of the. I was just talking to a couple that are that are looking to take a trip to to France, and we're sort of like, well, can you even go see wineries? Like we've heard sort of conflicting reports, and obviously, you know, it, it's a it's impossible to generalize. But are there are there a couple places in Europe that you think are particularly uh, better for people who want to go do some wine tourism and maybe want to do a little bit of legwork, but but can't necessarily you know tap into um, <clears throat> the kind of connections that like you or I would have that are just sort of wine lovers. Yeah, sure. You know, well, the thing about Europe to, to keep in mind is, it, is outside of sort of incredibly well-established places like Champagne, a lot of wineries don't necessarily have quote-unquote tasting rooms. Um, they, but they're more than happy to, to, to have visitors. It's, it's, it's just that you have to call in advance or, or email in advance and so on. So it, the, the structure is kind of different in that, you know, and it's changing to some degree. You're starting to see more and more wineries with, you know, tasting rooms with posted hours and all that kind of thing. But, you know, especially if you're looking at small family wineries, that they may not have someone around every day to stand there and wait behind a counter for people to pull up. But I, I find that even if you're not in the business, if you just, you know, shoot an email or, or give a call and say that you're in, you know, you're going to be in the area and you love their wines, you'd love to come visit, 90% of the time they're willing to see you. 
Um, that said, you know, there are some regions like, you know, Champagne, for instance, is quite easy to be a tourist in. There's, you know, Champagne houses do, in fact, have tourism structures set up and, and, and so on. And and it's really cool. I mean, you know, so, so the, the, you know the, yeah, you the, have the advantage of drinking champagne. And you have the advantage of drinking champagne the whole time, which is not so bad. And you've got some really great restaurants, too. Um, you know, I think Piedmont, for instance, is a, you know, is a mix of that where there are certainly wineries that have a, a kind of established tasting room structure or whatever you want um and at the same time there are other smaller wineries that will be happily see you if you get in touch it's also it's just a gorgeously beautiful region and there's a lot of really good food which yeah. <laughs> you know, i was there i, I was I, there in november for the right after the truffle festival uh and uh yeah it was it was yeah. a it was I quite mean, an experience yeah it's like what dark what dark you with how could you how could you pass it up you got barolo and truffle this life is perfect um you know i think that a couple of regions that are a little less on the beaten path and or don't have as much infrastructure but are amazing is you know that and one of them would be the Douro Valley in Portugal you know where port comes from and more and more table wines as well which for years really there was nowhere to stay unless you were unless you were in the business and now there are there are several hotels six senses over the hotel there and a couple of others as well and it's one of the most spectacular wine regions on the planet it's just beautiful and and it's actually more much more visitable than it once was um for people who aren't in the wine business and that's you know i think the door is gorgeous um i also think you know i mean sicily is kind of a fantastic place to visit it's uh, you know it's maybe not um or similarly puglia that's the sort of southern italian zones where you've got again just gorgeous broad scale gorgeousness and really good food but also you know a, a little more rustic wine situation but still if not an, uh, you know, a standard kind of tasting room, at least total willingness on the part of the proprietors to see you. Well, um, and the advantage those, that it's probably unlikely to be 34 degrees and snowing when you go there. It's really, really not that likely. I mean, it's, usually it isn't in Willamette either. I just, I just had it. <laughs> they just it's, broke it's out the cold unlikely. weather for you, Ray. They know how they know how New Yorkers like it. Yeah, well, it's, it's a completely weird year. It was, I mean, it's February, and I left New York, and it was 65 in New York in February, which makes no sense. I get to Willamette, it's 34 and snowing. It's just backwards. Yeah. But, um, but, uh, you know, uh, we will all be dealing with this <laughs> one way or another. That's a whole um, other story. You know, I, I, think I actually just did a story. It's kind of a cool place to visit, too. Um, you know, the, there's been a, I guess you call it a boom or renaissance or whatever, of you know, in sparkling wine in England. Um, mm-hmm. There's some there's some really good sparkling wine being made in England. And it's not terribly surprising because it's effectively the same latitude as champagne and more or less the same soil and thanks to a small measure of global warming, you know, about effectively um, similar climate. And there's some cool wines being made. And it's also, you know, looking at this whole region of these home counties south of, of London that are, you know, an hour from London or an hour from Heathrow, very easy to get to, lots of gastropub, lots of, you know, established tourist infrastructure, but still not that travel to the wine region. And it's and it's it's pretty cool to go there. Plus, you could spend time in London. Yeah, that's um, so bad. Not a bad thing. <laughs> uh, one one last uh, kind of question for you, Ray, which is, uh, and it, maybe you've already answered this in part with some of the places you're talking about, but obviously, you know, you get the opportunity to try a lot of wines. You um, some of them by uh, choice and by interest, and some out of professional necessity. But but what when you go home, what do you what do you tend to turn to? <laughs> bourbon. Um. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good answer. Yeah, I, 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 I do like bourbon. I, this is my default when I'm not drinking wine. But you know, I drink a lot of. Um, Particularly right now, I drink a lot of cooler climate, unoaked whites, uh, northern Italian, for instance, parts of Spain. It, not so much 
you know, much as I love to drink white Burgundy, I don't like to buy it because it costs a fortune. Yeah, it's the um, best wine when someone know, else is paying. But, but uh, you know, what are, what are you going to do? Um, I do drink a lot of, of that sort of thing. Um, I drink – because I'm kind of constantly tasting, I often – what I do is whatever I'm tasting, if I taste tin, like I was tasting a bunch of, of island whites today, you know, from, from Sicily, Sardinia, um, Canary Islands, this kind of stuff. So what I'll do often at the end of the day is whatever was kind of the winner out of the tasting, I'll take home to have with dinner. So so often my, my sort of day-to-day what goes with dinner wine is, is actually what performed well in, in the office in the tasting that afternoon, which is, you know, a luxury, no question. And in reds, you know, I pretty pretty broad ranging i do drink i mean i do like wines that have some age on them and i'm fond of regions that are a little under recognized for their ability to age so like i mean i really love old rioja if i can if i can get it um it's people rave about burgundy and bordeaux aging and and i and they certainly do age beautifully but i think rioja ages just as well and and is is sort of underknown in the u.s in that regard similarly you know really good chianti is the same way um there's a lot of drab fairly mass produces Chianti out there, but at the same time, the, the good wines are gorgeous and they'll, and they'll stick around forever and, and really develop beautifully. And that's, you know, something I've been looking into lately too. Um, so yeah, it's, in some ways easier uh, to find sort of older expressions, especially of Rioja. Cause I feel like a lot of the, the Rioja producers tend to, uh, even on like a reserva, certainly a Grand Reserva, they tend to hold those bottles uh, back quite a while. I mean, I know there's a couple that I really like that are that are in distribution now that are like 05, 06 vintage, and that's their current release. And that's, I mean, you know, that's ten years plus of yeah. of aging that's, that you don't have to do anything to to get. Absolutely, and that are still priced fairly reasonably. And it's the, you know, that's the kind of um, that's that's an ideal in some sense. That's what you you know what you want is you know be able to find something that was actually held back at the winery for ten years, or at least when it actually shows some character. Of, of aging and then again also at the same time isn't priced through the roof um which is pretty cool you know and that actually going back to travel that's again one reason also to to visit wineries and so on because more and more i find california particularly you're seeing more and more library wines for sale in tasting rooms um i think people have held back enough stock that you can get pretty cool older wines sometimes for not a crazy amount of money if you buy direct from the winery on the ground when you're there um, same thing in Europe, you know, and that that can be kind of a fun, you know, exploratory thing to do. Yeah, absolutely, and I think it's very uh, you not only get a chance to try those wines, but yeah, be able to buy them and and just sort of just have that experience. I was I was at uh, Bocastel. Uh, this past November as well, and uh, we're walking through their incredibly immense cellar, and just you know, there's <laughs> bottles from going back into the 50s, um, you know, and it's funny because you see a few a few bins, a few lots where there's like, oh man, there's only like f- six bottles of that left, and you kind of it's like this weird kind of like it's almost like this. Um, it's sort of like it feels like watching some sort of nature documentary where it's like the last two, you know, white rhinos or something. You're like, man, these are the last right. six bottles of <laughs> of their you know, shut them up to pop blanc from whatever, you know, from some fabulous vintage 58 years ago. And you're just like, man, like, how do you decide to open that last bottle? But that's the thing about wine, right? Like even, even the great stuff won't last forever. So you got to drink it at some point. No. And it's true. I mean, anybody, I mean, if you have your own cellar, you run into the same problem all the time. It's like, it's my last bottle of this wine I love. And, uh, you know, when am I going to open it or am I going to open it? Um, but it does die eventually. You know, it's like wine, like people does not last forever. Um, you know, (laughs) you, uh, you have to you have to drink it at some point. Well, I think else, that's as you know. that, that's as good a place to leave it as I can come up with. Uh, yeah. Ray, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it, and uh, look forward to chatting more with you about wine in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Zach.
Thanks again to Ray Isle for joining me on Disgorged. You can find him on Twitter at Islewine. And while you're there, follow me at Zjabal. That's Z-G-E-B-A-L-L-E. Thanks again for listening to Disgorged, and cheers. (laughs) 